Well, hello, everybody. This is Mark Vines, and welcome to The Mark Vines Show. And thank you for joining us for your one-stop shop for everything conservative, American, constitutional, and really just the right way to live your life. And today that we're going to have uh, a guest, and this is going to be J.D. Maddox. J.D. Maddox is going to be running for the House uh, of Delegates here in Virginia, District 45, which if you're not familiar with Virginia or if you're not familiar with the districts, that's basically the Alexandria portion of Virginia up through Potomac. And we're very fortunate to have J.D. with us today, and he's going to be talking to us about his basic platforms as he's running for this next election here in Virginia. And he's going to be in a tough, tough race because it's Northern Virginia. And for those of you that don't know, Northern Virginia is deep blue. For the most part, Virginia is basically a conservative state. You wouldn't know that from the recent elections. But if you get out into the, um, you know, really sort of the, the south and southwest portion of the state, it's fairly conservative, but not Northern Virginia where he's at. And uh, pretty interesting guy. He's a small business owner, and he's going to talk to us about that. But he's also spent some time with the CIA and was a special operations soldier. Um, and he'll talk about that as well. And then did some counterterrorism work and intel work uh, as well. And you know what? JD has gotten the endorsement of American Veterans Vote. And that's an organization that I've become deeply involved with. And and if you haven't checked them out, I hope that you do, American Veterans Vote. And you can reach them at AmericanVeteransVote.com, AmericanVeteransVote.com. Check them out. But he has recently received their endorsement. And so today I'd like to introduce you to J.D. Maddox. And so, uh, J.D., welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This is a, a great opportunity. I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Well, if you can, just I gave you just the, the audience a brief overview of your background, but go ahead and share with us what you, what you can about your background, and then we'll get into your platform and what drove you into running for this office. That sounds great. So, yes, I, uh, I am a uh, small business owner here in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, I've been a resident of Alexandria for about 20 years, and... I'm very uh, much in love with this district. I think it really is uh, a fantastic place to have a family. The diversity of people, the diversity of experiences you can get here are extraordinary. Um, I'm also on the uh, IT commission here in the city of Alexandria, and I'm a an adjunct professor at George Mason University where I teach a course on countering disinformation, which I think mm. is pretty appropriate to the political environment we're all experiencing right now. Um, and I'm also, as, as you said, a former CIA branch chief. I was focused intently on counterterrorism there and had some great successes. Um, I was also a special operations soldier, uh, specifically a psychological operations soldier. So again, focused on influence operations and countering disinformation. Um, so I, I do feel like those credentials can really uh, do us some good in Richmond if the people will have me, um, and, I, and I think it's a step above what the this district has experienced in terms of feasible candidates for uh, for quite some time. Um, and I, I'm I'm excited for November second to roll around and, and see how people feel about me on the on the ballot. Well, outstanding, and I'll tell you what, your background could not be more appropriate to the times, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are we are experiencing, uh, I think, at least in my my experience, my lifetime, 
um, one of the most divisive political moments that we can possibly experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of it, to be honest. I think that it is the challenge of our times. I think that, you know, we all as Americans are challenged to overcome the divisiveness that we're facing in politics and to find a new way to converse with each other and to overcome that division that we've all been presented with. And I, I do think that it's a, uh, a false division. I think that essentially Americans uh, in general are eager for prosperity and peace, and that requires us to work together. And so I, I, you know, everything about my campaign and everything about my, you know, my experience and, and my work really is about reunifying us as a community and uh, pushing for that same reunification at the state and national level. I think it, it is the challenge of our times, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm dead set to try to fix that. You know, I couldn't agree with you more because I look out at the country, and when I look at what I'm hearing in the press about the division, div divisiveness, and, and people being at each other's throats, I travel across America. And in fact, before we came on this program, you and I were having an offline discussion, and I, I was telling you that I, I just got back from traveling around the country. I don't see Americans at each other's throats. I, I just don't. I don't see the way that it's portrayed in the media. And you have to wonder, what in the heck is this all about? And it's just so appropriate to me that you're especially, your background is in disinformation because you know, correct me if I'm wrong, JD, but I, this has got to be disinformation because I don't see Americans at each other's throats the way that we're told that we are. It's almost like they're 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 painting a very different reality. Uh, would you agree with that? I think that what we're experiencing is, in great part, a, a result of the information systems that we're using. So, especially social media and the internet essentially requires us to identify with one or another category of political thinking. And there's no option in between. So we are either hard right or hard left on the internet. And there's really no opportunity for that, uh, that middle voice. And, and that middle voice has really not been given much uh, consideration in uh, traditional media either. And so, you know, it is becoming more and more difficult for us to see each other beyond that uh, presentation that we're seeing on the internet and on TV. So, you know, and, and our, our key politicians these days, the most popular politicians these days, they're really, they're like WWF characters. They're, they're kind of, you know, in a, in a ring and, and going after each other. You know, it's either Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, or Marjorie, uh, Marjorie Green, who, who are, you know, these, in my mind, really caricatures of politicians. And, and we are, are just stuck in these sort of categorizations of each other. And I, I think that's kind of a core problem. But I think you're absolutely right that when you start talking to individuals and you start, you know, speaking to them one-on-one -on -one and in person and you have a chance to actually have a conversation, you immediately realize that, you know, all of that is garbage. Uh, and people are quite uh, open. People are quite willing to negotiate. People uh, have principles, but they're also willing to think and speak freely about those principles and negotiate on those principles. Um, so I, I regret deeply that we are locked in this divisive 
really combative conversation on the internet and in uh, mainstream media. And we've got to uh, bring down the noise. We've got to quell the nerves. We've got to start speaking to each other uh, compassionately again and on each other's terms. And I, and I, I think that's, again, that's a, that's a major challenge of our times. Yeah, it is. And you're right. Uh, for example, AOC, and, and not to pick on her, Ocasio-Cortez, but I was thinking about this uh, not long ago. Uh, it, it, as I mentioned to you offline, you know, my bachelor's degree is in political science, and I've been sort of a political news junkie my in, entire life. And I, when I watch somebody that gets as much press time as she does, I, I sit and I shake my head. And not because I disagree with her politics, which I do. I want to go on the record with that. I disagree with nearly everything that comes out of her mouth. But beyond that, when you look at uh, Congress, when you think about it, she's a very junior congressperson. Um, she's new. Um, she she is not in a position of power. And you've I've often wondered, why is it that this one lady is getting so much press time? When you think of uh, between the House and the Senate, you have 535 members, you know, 435 members in the Senate or in the, in the House, rather. And many of them are new, just like she is. Name one that, that's on television. You know, she's on television, and you never hear from the others. And you, my my only conclusion is just what you, you mentioned, and that is because it, it gets airtime, it divides people, she has such an extreme message that um, it gains people's attention, and it, and it just pushes people, you're either far left or you're far right. And there, like you'd mentioned, there's not a whole lot in between. Now, having talked to you, uh, you're not real far right, and you're not left. You're you're somewhere in the middle, aren't you? I am as middle as you get. <laughs> I am trying to, uh, and, and it's very deliberate. I mean, it, it is certainly uh, very natural for me. Everything that I've experienced in uh, my professional life and my personal life um, indicates to me that the best solutions are in the middle. They're solutions that uh, inc are inclusive. So they're bringing in opinions from both sides and they're attempting to resolve those differences and find uh, the middle of the road. That, that is how you help people to recognize that uh, you know, we're, we're not all pitched against each other. When, when you can find those solutions that help everyone, you, uh, you show everyone that there is a middle way, there is a third way to do business. Um, and I think, you know, for whatever reason, that has been forgotten. And, and I, you know, again, I attribute it, a lot of it to the information systems that we're using these days, but also to this sort of echo effect um, that uh, the traditional media is, is representing. And, you know, like you said, they are really, you know, attracted to uh, the extremes and they're really overrepresenting those extremes in their broadcasts. And of course, that has a trickle down effect um, on the Internet and other other information platforms. And, you know, what what I'm seeing is that the these policies, which are on the extremes, they're starting to trickle down to the local level and the local politicians are taking them seriously. So these sort of bizarre extreme options are becoming feasible options at the, at the local political level where there just isn't as much um, attention on the politicians and there isn't as, uh, as, as much uh, limitation on, on what the politicians could do. So um, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And I, I see these sort of extreme uh, 
policy is starting to uh, show, show up here in my own district. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of your district, what would you say is the number one issue that you're concerned with and you want to address? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a host of issues that are affecting this this district, mm-hmm. and you know they range from the school system essentially uh, being non-working over the last year, and the police here being demoralized, underfunded, and even in in uh, one case defunded uh, in the schools, and then uh, some economic policies here such as experimental guaranteed income, eviction moratoria, uh, and unionization that are really taking our economy in a, I think, a a problematic direction. But of all of those issues, I think the one that really matters most to people here and that is really affecting um, uh, the voters here is is the schools issue. I think that um, the schools, Uh, the failure of the schools to reopen last year, the failure of the schools to implement in-person education last year, you know, those have really disrupted education uh, among Mm -hmm. the public school uh, population. And uh, I think we are seeing now as a result of that, the public schools are being abandoned by any parents who can afford to leave the school system, the public school systems, and there's a real implication of that. You know, one is that, you know, if if the parents are leaving these schools as a result of a perception that they are failed schools, um, I think the implication there is that, you know, we're going to have we're going to have a set of public school kids who are undereducated, potentially, uh, and who are you know really going to potentially fall behind. Uh, the kids who are in private schools, whose whose education was not shut down last year, um, and who are able to access education in person and to have that experiential education that was missing among public school kids in this district last year, um, and the you know this problem is really uh, uh, encouraging new political activism here in District 45. So you've got. Parents who, you know, were, I think, I think that, you know, people really weren't paying attention to their, to their uh, school boards and to their uh, public school leadership and that they had simply let these boards do whatever they want for quite some time. And now they're the parents and and the students are waking up to, uh, you know, the, the low standards that they had applied to uh, these school board members. And so now we're seeing much more activism. We're seeing the parents get much more involved. We're seeing the parents, you know, not in Alexandria, but uh, in in other other surrounding counties, you know, calling for um, uh, some of these school board members to to step down and demanding that uh, education be held in person um, and that education be really higher, much higher quality than uh, they have experienced in recent history. So um, I, I think the schools issue is 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 dramatic, to be honest. I think that it's, yeah. it's something that um, the parents and the and the kids are really uh, re- responding to in a in a very 
uh, proactive way. But in, in one sense, it's great. It's great to see people politically active in, in that way. Um, but it's just it really makes me sad. I have two young daughters who uh, have been in public school over the last year. And, you know, they were, you know, they would cry at night because their schooling was terrifying to them. They they were staring at a screen all day and they weren't getting the education that uh, they had become accustomed to. And our standards for their education uh, were very high. And they knew that they were not meeting them, that they could not meet those standards that we were, we were setting because they weren't getting the kind of education that they, they expected that, that they should have gotten. Um, so they were, you know, extraordinarily anxious. And my my family is a fairly well-off family. I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to say that. Um, but the families who are not well-off were in much worse condition, conditions than, than mine. And so, you know, we're, we're going to see, you know, in addition to that, Sort of falling behind of public school kids, you know, we're we're going to see a further falling behind of, of public school kids who can't, whose families cannot afford extra uh, help. So this is a real problem for our melting pot schools. It's a real problem for um, potential classism in yep. Virginia and in uh, this district. And it 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 bothers me to no end. But I'm not the only one. Uh, I'm not I'm not just representing my own interests. This is me echoing what's what's going on in my community yeah you know what's funny about that is that all this talk about equity and inequality uh, across the nation which a lot of these left movements are are pushing for the ironic part is that what you just described is something that pushes people further apart because let's face it those that have the means to do so are still going to get a quality education if they can find it and if they can afford it. They will find alternative methods. But those that can't are going to be left in these substandard systems, which really creates a larger divide, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it And it really um, it is a long-term challenge for us. I think that we, we are going to see, again, a, a split of educational opportunities for uh, the affluent and the uh, those who are not well off, um, and that is not how our public school system is supposed to function. It should be a, a you know an equally accessible education for all. And the beauty of public schools, you know, and the reason one of the reasons that uh, you know I, I wanted my daughters in there was to to access all communities to to access. Uh, every skin color to access every economic stratum to act, you know to access all of that and you know that's that's potentially breaking down as a, as a result of just bad policy over the last year yeah exactly and it, it's funny how pe- i think people are starting to wake up to this and i you know we we talk about this term being woke and I really think if there's something that this last year, year and a half has caused, you know, people starting to wake up, it's almost like being woke on the, the conservative side, that people are starting to pay attention to things that they normally would not pay attention to. You mentioned the school boards and how people have really neglected the school boards and really didn't pay attention to them and didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes. But if there's one advantage to COVID, COVID has opened all of our eyes to what's been going on in the school boards. And you know, you see this with uh, critical race theory. You know, for those of you that are listening to this program that are not in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, 
and you're you're somewhere else in the country, uh, you may be familiar with um, some of the attention that's been put on Loudoun County. And um, District 45, which is where J.D. is running, is in Alexandria, which is not far from Loudoun County. So we've been sort of the epicenter of this whole movement. And there was a video recently that went viral about a woman. Um, she She's resigning from her position as a teacher because she had to teach. She's being forced to teach critical race theory and, and that, that ideology. Um, people were not aware of this. People were not aware of the extent of this. And so not only are our children not being educated and they're having to sit behind computer screens, but but they are, instead of being educated in the, uh, you know, substandard system that they're already in, they're being taught things that really have nothing to do with their larger education. And is that something that concerns you? Um, so I, I'm really cautious of the critical race theory narrative that's going around. Mm. And by the way, I think in terms of narratives, because I am a, I am, uh, again, I'm a uh, adjunct professor focused on disinformation and how, how to counter disinformation. And so I think in terms of narratives, I think in terms of how issues are being presented and the systems that they're being presented on. And that's sort of a meta conversation, right? But I think it's absolutely uh, critical to this discussion of critical race theory. Um, I think that there's been a uh, sort of uh, a malinformation effort around critical race theory. Um, I, my understanding of it is that critical race theory is a theory and that it was presented in the 70s and that it's, uh, you know, uh, becoming more and more popular, but that critical race theory is not a program. So it's not something that is, you know, a teachable system in and of itself. It's a theory. Um, but what we're seeing, I think, are that we're seeing some minor programmatic efforts to insert um, sort of elements of critical race theory uh, within our school systems. And that's what the parents in, uh, in Loudoun County and elsewhere are reacting to. Um, but I think we need to be extraordinarily careful about misusing the term critical race theory uh, and blending it with the idea of equity. Um, and I, I think that's a real problem. And I think it, it, it really creates a place, uh, it creates a set of terms that can easily be abused. And I, I think the risk of that is that, you know, equity is, uh, was, in, was well intended, right? It, it was, it, it, it's, it was, it's been around long before uh, this problem has ever been evident. And, you know, the idea behind equity is to is to give uh, equal access to resources and to ensure that uh, those who are not well off have the as, as good resources as those who are affluent and uh, other things like that. Um, I think that equity is, you know, inherently a useful function. Um, however, when you start conflating equity with things like critical race theory uh, and other issues, then you, you really are creating a toxic narrative. You're really creating a place where it's now impossible to discuss things without um, appearing to uh, bump up against racism or other issues like that. So I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, you know, how these issues are being discussed. And I'm seeing in places like Loudoun County and elsewhere that, uh, you know, people don't know how to talk about these issues. And so things are boiling over and it's becoming impossible 
for people to have rational discussions about these very complex issues. So um, I, I would just caution everybody to you know, take a step back when you're talking about these issues and think very thoroughly about what you're, what you're talking about. Um, because we do not want to accidentally instigate each other to violence over something that really doesn't require it. It requires a thoughtful uh, and meaningful discussion. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of which, um, you know, we can jump over to the the police issue because uh, you mentioned that in your district there's been uh, a discussion about defunding the police that are in the school system. And so that's another issue that has become very volatile volatile in the last couple of years. Can you kind of address that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, I think that defunding the police issue is, you know, it's it's an it's a single indicator of an anti-police uh, mindset that has kind of gotten into a a political group, and it I think is another extraordinarily toxic, politicized and uh, divisive issue that that could really uh, kind of blow up. On us, and, and what we're seeing at the local level, I think, is you know, it's kind of like national politics in miniature. So I think that District 45, uh, the city of Alexandria, are experiencing uh, kind of the the worst uh, of of this kind of thinking. So you know, what I what I'm saying is that you know, my my opponent in this race, you know, she's very well known for uh, her uh, anti-police position. Her, her aide went, went into D.C. last year and assaulted a police officer and uh, was arrested for that. And um, my opponent, instead of condemning violence against police or condemning violence in general, praised her aide and her aide's uh, history of protest. And um, that infuriated a lot of voters in this district. But she doubled down this year, uh, just a month ago, when she was the deciding vote on the city council to uh, defund the school police in Alexandria City Public Schools, and that ha- she did that, you know, during a moment of a 20% spike in violent crime in Alexandria, and despite over 100 reports of assaults in one school in Alexandria City. And of course, the looming specter of school shootings and mass shootings um, throughout the country. And I, I think that it's one of the most irresponsible things I've, I've seen a city government do. Um, I, it just flies in the face of common sense uh, and, and good, good policy. And so, you know, if that is the, the standard here in Alexandria, the risk is that it sets a precedent for other districts and other cities throughout Virginia and then further afield throughout the country. You know, if Alexandria, you know, says very vocally, we're, we're defunding these police, you know, even despite the school board's ruling in favor of the police, well, you know, that, that really could, uh, in, you know, instigate some copycat legislation around the country. And I, I think that's extraordinarily dangerous. I think that it's a uh, you know a very populist effort, and that you know these these politicians were were thinking in terms of only the immediate issues in front of them and their ability to get votes 
and to appeal to uh, small interest group groups at the at the city and uh, district level. And I, I, I again, I think that's uh, pretty irresponsible of them. Yeah, it is. Uh, because can you name one jurisdiction in the country where defunding the police has had a positive effect yet? I certainly can't. <laughs> I would be. I would if someone could present me a study that says that uh, defunding the police is, uh, you know, a useful policy in the United States. Great. I'd love to read it. I'd love to see, you know, statistically and objectively, you know, how that potentially helps us. Uh, but I think, you know, again, the the council members in uh, Alexandria who voted to defund the police in the schools here, they they did it uh, in the name of equity. And that, again, is a it's a misuse of that term. And we're almost certain to see the uh, any violence resulting from this, this defunding of the police affect minorities first. And yep. I, I think that's that's a tragedy. I think it's, again, a, a misuse of that term equity and an abuse of that term equity. Um, and it, it's it's you know, it, it, it kind of is almost uh, a perverse political movement. Yeah, it is, because just like with education, like we were talking about earlier, those that can afford to have security, those that want to stay safe will find a way to stay safe. The people that are hurt are those that cannot provide for their own protection. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think that's probably right. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, the the well-off are, are less affected by uh, some of these policies in the immediate and so you know and again it creates this sense of false comfort and false hope that uh you know carrying out these really uh i I hate to say the term but these woke policies really um you know is okay i think they're gonna blow up in our faces and um we're gonna everybody's gonna suffer the consequences yeah yeah starting with the people that that Really, we need to be protecting in society and that are not going to be able to protect themselves. That's the shame of this. And that a real serious question, and that, that's why I asked that, was uh, can you think of one study that says that defunding the police has had a positive effect? And if there's any listener out there that uh, can think of a study that was done and can send it to us here on the show, I'd love to read it because I, I personally cannot think of one. This has been disastrous nationwide. I uh, read an article recently that said New York City had a 400% spike in homicides over the last year. Four, 400% spike. Um, and every city, to include Alexandria, is going to have maybe not quite that that kind of a spike, but it's been a spike in really every ma- major uh, measurable statistic, crime statistic that you can think of. Yeah. Um, and I'd also like to see if there were any statistics that went down uh, as a result being victimized. Of, uh, I think it's gone up. Uh, maybe arrests. So maybe total number of arrests went uh, down. But, there, but I'm, as I'm far as wish you luck uh, on that that issue, because it does seem to be like the the flavor of the day. And and also speaking of the the flavor of the day, you mentioned evictions and uh, mandatory ev- evictions. Address that a little bit, because I know that's a concern of yours. Well, I, I think that um, you know, of course. COVID-19 had extraordinary economic effects on, uh, you know, everybody across the board um, and especially on those who did not have uh, the, the best uh, job certainty. 
And so, um, you know, of course, we're experiencing, you know, these conditions where um, we want to give as much support as possible to those people who have lost jobs and who are, uh, have, you know, experienced real economic problems over COVID-19. But I think what we're seeing are some fairly short-sighted policies uh, emerging right now. Um, and it seems to be a, a, a really a suite of policies that are uh, really emerging from the, the far left. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, I really want to make it clear that, you know, I'm, I'm open to new ideas. I'm open to new concepts on how to help those who are unfortunate and those who have lost jobs. Um, but I want to do it in a way that is um, objective and measurable and that is not endless. And so I think, you know, the suite of policies that we're seeing emerge right now include uh, eviction moratoria. So, you know, ruling that, uh, you know, landlords cannot evict their, their tenants. Um, and that may have its place. Uh, but I think that it, it's been quite some time and those landlords are suffering probably as much as the tenants at this point. Um, and I think that this portrayal of landlords as these, you know, greedy, uh, extraordinarily rich people is, is unfortunate. I, I think that there are some, you know, a lot of, a lot of landlords are small, essentially small business owners who are, uh, trying to eke out a living from, from uh, owning properties and renting them out. And, you know, they're, they are suffering now. And so putting a moratorium on evictions uh, really, I think, has its limitations. And we're going to have to find a new way to solve that problem. But again, I think it's part of a suite of, of policies such as, you know, Alexandria is now experimenting with uh, a guaranteed income effort. So they're going to hand out uh, uh debit cards that contain $500 a month to, I think it's 100, 150 families. And those debit cards, as far as I know, have no limits on what you spend it on. And there's no metric for tracking what they're being used for. And there's no limit on how long those uh, cards would be handed out. So, you know, a, a guaranteed income set up like that uh, could be become a dependency for uh, the recipients of that of that uh, benefit, and I, I think that that's troublesome, and it's something that should be studied much more closely than a simple experiment. Uh, and you know, it, it does reek of um, an effort to uh, populist effort to um, try to appeal the voters, and then you know, the effort at the state level and at the local level to increase unionization, um, I think is, is also problematic. I think that, you know, Virginia has its right to work policy, which uh, allows workers not to opt in to unionization. And I think, you know, that uh, the Democratic Party wants to get rid of that. They want to essentially unionize as much as possible. And, you know, all of these efforts really are starting to sound uh, extraordinarily 1917-ish, <laughs> if you get my thinking. Mm -hmm. And, yep. it, and, yeah. and uh, it, it's really, um, 
problematic. I think there are other solutions you can put in place that help much more in the long term, such as uh, increased apprenticeship opportunities that help people who have not uh, uh, had higher education, but uh, who have the um, uh, who have the ability to apprentice. I, I'm also conceptualizing something I'm calling four for four, which is giving four years of free higher education to Virginians who will then accept a service position, a service job in Virginia for four years following that. So similar to, you know, uh, an army stint, um, you could go to college for four years and serve four years as a police officer or a firefighter or a, or any other uh, service position, maybe utilities um, for Virginia and pay, pay back that four years. I think that's a great way for uh, younger people to get into the into the job environment and to uh, avoid being jobless when they're popping out of out of out of college, I also think that we need to um, reduce small business taxes and reduce the regulation that we're putting on small businesses to encourage more uh, small small business growth and maybe even uh, do some debt forgiveness for small businesses in Virginia. Uh, uh, you know, during the COVID-19 as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. So I think that there are other ways to approach this rather than simply giving away money and, yeah. um, you know, punishing those who uh, have have property. I think that that's uh, very backwards thinking. Yeah, I, I agree with you because, you know, listen, all this stuff is not free. I know it sounds like, oh, look at this. Great. Got all this great free stuff. Nothing is free. And when you are telling a, a, a property owner that they can no longer evict people that are not paying them, for, remember, they are paying for that property. Somebody is paying for that. And I really like your four for four uh, idea. I'd not heard that before, but that's a, a very interesting concept. And, you know, I think that, the, you know, this needs to come from somewhere. There needs to be some payback. There need we, We've gotten to the point where we're just handing out so much stuff and we're forgiving so much debt that this is not going to come without a price down the road. And it seems to me like there's just not a lot of forward thinking on the, like, what are the, what are the repercussions of this going to be down the road? It, it's pretty scary. And uh, it, I do it, like it, the it, fact that you're thinking ahead. You know, what are the repercussions of this going to be? Yeah, and I, you know, I think that there is a role for uh, some temporary benefits, financial benefits for people who are really suffering from job loss. Um, but I don't think it can be without metrics and w without uh, a, an end to those to those programs. There has to be limitations on these. It has to be aligned with you know the the uh, money we actually have available to do these things. I, I think that a lot of these programs. Defunding the police, guaranteed income, you, you know, over unionization, eviction moratoria. These are kind of fantasy programs where we're, we're pretending that uh, we are not in a uh, uh, we're, we're not in a capitalist society. We're, we're pretending we're in a different system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with the fact that uh, you and I came into contact with, with one another through your status as being a veteran uh, in American Veterans Vote, Talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, you have any um, thoughts on veterans issues in, in Alexandria and in, in your district? Yeah, I think, um, you know, first of all, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of my service. Uh, I was a Army Special Operations soldier. Um, I come from a family that 
all of whom have served. My father was a four-star general. My both of my brothers were officers in the in the army, and my family goes back. We can trace back to uh, our service in the the American Revolution, and um, you know we're very proud of that military service. I think that um, you know if I could have my way, and I don't think I ever would have it, but I, I would love to see uh, you know more more people serving than than, uh, than than do. I think that it really opens people's eyes to the diversity of people we have in this country because you're, you're serving alongside, you know, every race, creed, and, and otherwise uh, when, you're in the, when you're in the military. And it really teaches you, um, you know, the value of your neighbor. It teaches you the value of other cultures. Um, and I think that that is priceless. Um, but beyond that, it also teaches service and the value of service and, and humility uh, toward your country and toward your, your fellow countrymen. And I, I, those things are irreplaceable. And so I would like to see more people uh, serving. But I, I think that the, the people who have served, they do deserve our greatest respect. Um, and I think that they do deserve um, some benefits beyond uh, what the what your average uh, civilian receives, I think that they should potentially get more tax benefits um, and things like that to ensure that they are able to uh, participate in in uh, society after they get out. Um, and I and I think you know it'd be great to to work on some programs like that. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And by the way, I have long said that, and I agree with you 100%. I know my military experience exposed me to so many things and cultures and people and ways of thinking that I would have never, ever experienced had I not gone into the the Navy. Absolutely. Uh, It's one of the best things that you can do for yourself, and I'm with you. I, I really encourage people, more people to serve, particularly young people to serve. It, it is such a great experience. It just is. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the, you know, one of the greatest things that, you know, that comes out of the military is that people, people see green. They, they don't see, they don't see black, white, uh, you know, any other color. They don't see races. They see green. You know, they, they, they see each other as individuals and they look for people's uh, uh, individual value and, and how they can uh, help the community. And I think that's it's absolutely essential. We get we have to have more of that. And I think that you know the idea behind my four for four program is similar to that. It it ensures that people are serving, and it ensures that people are uh, part of the community in a way they might not be if they simply go into college and come out in a in a commercial industry or something like that. It also gives you. Um sort of a commitment. I One thing I've noticed about being in the military and everybody that I've known that served, even even first responders, police officers, firefighters, uh, corrections officers, EMTs, all, all of those different services, there's just something about doing those jobs for a while that give you a connection to the larger community. I, there, I've always felt a sense of community um, or obligation towards the community and towards the nation um, after my experience. Did, didn't you feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it, it's pretty addictive, to be honest. That you know, I got out of the military, and the first thing I did was go back into another organization that that had that same sense of camaraderie. <laughs> I and, did too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I I, I joined uh, the Department of Energy's equivalent of special operations, and and then I was in the CIA for a very long time. You know, and so you know, all of those organizations are you know military like, and yeah. they they all have that 
strong bond and that strong sense of community and strong sense of mission. Um, and you know, it, it would be great to have more of that across across our community. Yeah, I, I think that we would have a lot less of this being at each other's throats. If, if that was the case, because everybody that I've ever met that's a veteran, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, what your sex is, what your sexual preference is, what your race is, doesn't matter. Uh, when I meet a, another vet, particularly a Navy vet, and I'm sure you feel the same way about the Army, you know, if I if I walk up to somebody, if I see him on an airplane and they're wearing a Navy hat or a Navy shirt, you know, it's like instant conversation and instant um, uh, bonding you know, as soon as you meet somebody like that. Yeah, I love that. I think it's fantastic. Um and it's that, you know, it's that sense of community and bond that is just totally unbreakable. It's great. Yeah. Well, J.D., I just I'll give you the last last thoughts. You know, just we covered a lot of ground here. There's a lot of other uh, topics we could cover. We could go for hours. And I want to have <laughs> you back on the program again. But just for this session right here, any last thoughts, anything that you'd like to leave with the voters before we depart for today? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm out uh, on I'm doing stump speeches every other day. I'm out uh, door knocking and phone calling and uh, you know trying to connect with my community and understand what they're what they're feeling, what they're going through, um, and I'm you know presenting what I think is a very uh, objective, moderate position on on uh, as as many issues as as possible. And you know the typical comeback among the the hardcore democrats i meet um and among the hardcore republicans i meet is oh which which uh, party are you in and uh, you know i think that we are again entrenched in this thinking that we must uh present as one party or the other that we must present as republican or democrat and I want people to lower their guard. I think that's you know that's part of the challenge of reunifying and overcoming our divisiveness is lowering our guard. You know, I think that um, you know the Republicans certainly uh, made it you know had some trouble over the last few years, and um, there's some reputational issues there. And the Democrats, uh, you know, they're they're also now encountering new new reputational issues and. I think that it is really short-sighted for us to only look at the the letter behind the politician's name. I think we've got to start thinking about what that politician is as an individual, you know, what they've done with their lives, what, you know, what they represent and, you know, how they're going to approach the problem of governance for all. And it's not about, you know, uh, representing just one side of the equation, it can't be anymore. It just it's it's so unhealthy for the for the nation and for the community. So you know, I, I'd love to hear from listeners about you know how to help people lower their guard, and I'd love to hear stories from people about how uh, communities are overcoming the divisiveness that we've been experiencing. I, I would just I would I think that there are stories out there. I think there are great uh, cases out there for how we're working together, but I don't think that they're getting the attention they deserve. And I would just I would encourage people to again lower your guard, speak with your neighbor as a as a human, as a friend, not as a political party, and um, you know let's try to let's try to pull back together. And so with that, if any of the listeners out there, if they want to reach out to your campaign, reach out to you. How would they do that? 
We have a great website at maddoxforvirginia.com. It's maddoxforvirginia.com. Um, lots of position statements on there, some press releases. There's even a donation button, hint, hint. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we uh, are eager to have, have folks interact with the, the site. We're also, of course, on social media, Maddox for Virginia on Facebook and Maddox for Virginia on Twitter. So, um, you know, lots, of, lots going on out there. We hope to hear from everybody. Now, is that spelled out F-O-R or the number four? On F-O-R, four? that's right. Maddox, F-O-R, Virginia.com. Oh, okay, yeah, and it's a great website. I did see that. Uh, please reach out to him. Uh, check out his stance on all these different positions. Um, if you are led to do so, please donate. These things are not free, folks. There's a lot of – for those of you that don't know, Virginia has really been uh, a critical state it really is. We, we butt up again, particularly Alexandria, where you are, JD, is right up there against Washington D.C. up on the border. It's a critical area, and because of the optics of that area, there's a lot of attention given to it, and a lot of money pours in, uh, particularly on the Democrat side. Uh, please help out any way that you can. And I know in talking to candidates left and right that uh, asking for donations, asking for money is a very sensitive issue. It's the, and JD, I'm sure you would agree with me on this. It's probably the part of what you're doing right now you, you dislike the most. Is that correct? That is the, that is the truth. Absolutely. Everybody I talk to say, I just hate doing that. I hate asking for money, but it's necessary. You're not running for an office unless you have some, some money coming in. So help in any way that you can. And and, you know, just visit his site. Also, uh, if you can, check out AmericanVeteransVote.com. That's AmericanVeteransVote.com. And J.D. is a proud recipient of their endorsement in this campaign. So check them out as well. And, folks, um, you know, check out my Facebook site, which is The Mark Vine Show. Uh, reach out to me. Uh, let me know how you think I'm doing. Give us some support. Spread this podcast all over the nation to all of your friends, particularly the friends that don't agree with you because they're likely the ones that need to hear these messages the most. And so, folks, with that, uh, J.D., thank you for coming on the program. And for everybody out there, please take care of yourselves. Keep your head up. We are going to move on forward and make America the best that it can be together. And with that, we'll talk to you soon. Take care.